It's always great to be back here with you at Parker Ford. Like Josh said, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is my hometown, and it's great to be back together. And just always fun to come back and, and see what God is doing um, here at Parker Ford Church as well, and to experience God together and to engage um, the Holy Spirit. And so um, today I want to talk about, uh, I, I'm going to be with you, I think, five times in the course of the next four months. And so um, I'm, I'm going to bring a, a thematic concept each time I come. I'm not crazy enough to expect you to remember each time connected together with these weeks in between. But uh, we'll be focusing on um, on Matthew 16 today because it's going to launch us into this, this overriding uh, idea. So this is Matthew 16. This is verses 13 through 20. I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along there. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this theme that um, we're going to be working on, that we're going to be looking at, is the idea of, of that Jesus is the king. And if he's a king, then he has a kingdom. So the, the king and his kingdom... Uh, each time I'm here, I'm going to bring this different nuance or look at it uh, from a different perspective. But, but the king and his kingdom is going to be a, a focal point for where we're headed, at least the times that I come and teach. Um, so here's an illustration that's going to launch us. I, like I said, I grew up around here. My granddad was a frame and carpenter, and so I grew up building houses with him. And uh, you learn how to work on a job site, and you know, there's sort of like a flow and a rhythm to it. And um, When I was a teenager... I went to work um, for a plasterer in the area, a guy named Dave Bruner doing stucco and ice systems, all kinds of stuff. So if you don't know what stucco is, stucco is it's a mortar mixture that you smear on the wall of the outside of buildings with a trowel. Um, you can make it all kinds of different finishes and whatnot. It makes a house really solid and really it, it looks nice. And so it's a very popular thing in, in, in our area. Um, and so uh, I went to work for him when I was, I don't know, probably about 15 um, so a few years later, I had learned the trade. I learned the flow of things. And Dave got to the point where he was willing to take me out to a job and leave me on my own and give me a goal to accomplish for that day. And after a while, I got to the where he would let me even oversee a couple of other guys, some laborers, another plaster or two, where we would work together. So let's just picture this in our heads. All right, we'll take this wall here. Now, we did houses or businesses usually. So just picture this wall with windows in it. Right? So the morning comes, and Dave takes us out to the job. He says, Jay, uh, you're in charge for the day. This is what I want you to get done. I want you to get this whole wall stuccoed. I'll be back around 4 o'clock. He goes, so uh, stucco the wall while you're at it. Keep the windows clean because stucco is very messy. Right? You're dropping a lot of this stuff, and when it gets on windows, it's very difficult to clean off. So, um, so stucco the wall while you're stuccoing. Keep the windows clean. Um, I'll be back at 4 o'clock. So I'm a good employee. Uh, I want to work well from my boss. We work hard. And uh, I just decided I'm really going to buckle down and do a good job. I hear exactly what Dave's telling me to do, and we're going to do it right. 
So I work these guys to the bone. We don't take any breaks. We don't take lunch. You know, I barely let them get a drink of water. And uh, it, because I'm going to, I'm, I'm really listening to Dave. We're going to do what he says. We're going to do well. Dave comes back at 4 o'clock. And he looks at me and he looks at the wall. And he goes, what have you been doing? I said, what are you talking about, Dave? I did a great job. Isn't this good? He's like, no, frankly, it's not. I said, Dave, come on. I heard what you said, and these windows look great. Like, tell me that you can't. Have you ever seen cleaner windows than this? Like, we, we, we got the best Windex, the best paper towels. I called my mom to find out the best method for washing windows, you know, um, because she never, she was never happy with my windows. And, uh, you know, and so we, we did it all right multiple times. These windows look incredible. And he goes, yeah, but you only got half the wall stuccoed. Dave, you said to wash the windows. No. I said to stucco the wall. Dave, I heard you say wash the windows. Well, yeah. Yeah. While you're stuccoing the wall, keep the windows clean. But the goal for you was to stucco the wall. You're not a window cleaner. You're a plasterer. And plasterers stucco walls. They don't, they don't wash windows. Dave, come on. You got to value window cleaning on some level or another. Sure, I value it like this much, but I'm actually running a plastering business, which does business this big. Like you just hurt me today, buddy. Like we we didn't get done what we needed to get done. I swear, Dave, we got done what you wanted to get done because the windows are clean, right? You see the discrepancy here? Jesus left us to do something, to be about something to have a mind, a heart, a soul, a spirit that are directed a certain direction. Under this big thing, under this goal, this idea, this kingdom that he's put us in, there are other things that we pay attention to. But the big concept here for us is this idea of kingdom. We get very distracted doing other things. It doesn't, I mean, we can program ourselves into oblivion. The American church is experts at it. Just keep creating things, keep doing things. We keep doing what we've always done, and then we always are what we've always been. And we look at ourselves and go, what's wrong here? We go, well, hey, at least our windows are clean. When in actuality, we're missing the point completely. Because the point is not to keep the windows clean. The point is not to have great programs. The point is not to build big churches. The point is not even to reach the lost. The point is to build the kingdom of God. The point is to be about his kingdom, which includes bringing people to Christ, which includes ministering to the needs of your local body, which includes being regionally focused and understanding that you're a bigger part than just your local church, which includes talking to your wife with kindness, which includes parenting your children, you know, faithfully and consistently. It includes all these things, but it's all under the auspices of building the kingdom of God. So much of our theology, particularly our salvation theology, the way we think about being saved, is to get us out of here. Like, man, the world is tough. The world is, is bad. It's full of sin. And uh, isn't it great to know that someday, when you and I die, we'll get to get out of here. Like, we'll get to go to heaven. Very little of Jesus' salvation theology is about going to heaven. Very little of Paul's theology is about going to heaven. It's mentioned here and there. But the real idea is not to get out of here. The whole story of Scripture is about getting there, here. All we can think about is getting there. 
But when Jesus' disciples asked him, Jesus, how should we pray? What does Jesus say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth. How? As it is in heaven. The, the point of God's heart is to bring heaven to earth. This is the story of the whole Bible. Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are completely without sin, completely accessible to the presence of God. Does God take them to heaven to hang out? Nope. What does God do? He comes down to the garden, and he walks with them in the cool of the evening. That's his rhythm. God comes down. What's the tabernacle? God comes down. He builds a tent for himself among his people. Does God need a house? Does God need a tent? No, not at all. But he desires to be with his people. The temple, his presence, manifest presence, fills the temple. What is Moses and David, what are they most terrified of? God, do not take your presence from us. Don't go there. <laughs> Stay here. Right, Moses is just begging God after the whole golden calf debacle. God, please, just don't leave us. Don't leave us. Don't remove your presence. David, in his own personal sin, right, he cries out to God, do not take your spirit away from me. Like, do not cast me from your presence. This is all about their getting here. And we serve a God who desires to be among us. Psalm 18, Psalm 144, Psalm 68, Psalm 84, the whole book of Isaiah. This is all about God being among his people. We serve a God who desires to come down. All of those texts say, God, part your heavens and come down. Touch these mountains with fire. Send your lightning. Do, you know, so th- um, they're praying for judgment in the midst of blessing. Judgment, blessing, whatever it is, God, be here with us. The great pain of the exile after the people of God have committed spiritual adultery over and over and over again is that they're not near God's presence anymore. They're not in the land where God resides. If you would ask anybody in those days, like, walk into Jerusalem, where's God? He's over there. Where's that? That's the temple. God lives there. But then Christ comes, and heaven comes to earth, incarnated as a human, and Jesus brings the full kingdom of God with him. He comes saying, repent. Why? Because the kingdom's here. The thing you said you want, it's here. I hope you're ready. We're not ready. Obviously. Right? And then there's this whole crazy story of the walking out of this incredible rabbi who lives his life in this amazing way, completely rewriting all these things that people had come to know. Jesus is saying amazing things like, you've heard it said that you should live like this. You've heard it said you should forgive your, someone that offends you seven times. After that, you're done with them. However, I tell you, you forgive them 70 times seven. You've heard it said that you should think like this, but I'm telling you to think like this. What's Jesus doing here? He's rewriting their laws. This is how you're used to living. This is how I'm telling you to live. What way is that, Jesus? That's the way of the kingdom. That's kingdom life. That's the beauty of what Jesus brings. When he says the kingdom of heaven is near, he means near, like here, right? Like here. It's, all, it's around us. We're in it. And the call for each one of us is to live as people of the kingdom, bringing God's kingdom and God's government to earth. Every Christmas, we pull out this neat, tidy, little, beautiful song that's gotten sort of like stuck in Handel's Messiah. That's a real shame that it's there. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. His name, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, 
wonderful counselor, prince of peace, right? These are all right, prince, kingdom, right? That whole idea of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Right? So God's government is continually increasing. The question is, is how is it made to increase? Well, now we live in the church, which means it increases through you and me. If the kingdom of God is not advancing, listen closely. This is a tough word. I know. If the kingdom of God is not advancing, it's because the people of God are not advancing it. If the kingdom of God is not advancing, it's because the people of God are not advancing it. And that's, there's no judgment there. But if the kingdom of God isn't reigning in Coventry or Pottstown or Parker Ford, it's because the people of God are not reigning the kingdom of God in Coventry, Pottstown, Parker Ford. Same thing in Lebanon where I come from. So the question is not how are we going to be real shame-based and real shame-filled and come together once a week so somebody can yell at us and tell us how we're not doing it, right? Rather, it's how can we be the people of God in a way that we together as a local church, as a regional church, as people together united under the banner of Christ, live the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the point. The kingdom is the wall. Ministries, things that we're called to, you know, endeavors here and there, these are all windows that need to be kept clean. Don't get me wrong. But if, if this great big wall isn't being stuccoed, it's because the people of God aren't stuccoing it, to take the illustration to its ridiculous end. So what we see here in Matthew chapter 16 is an institution of Jesus' government. It's the institution of his kingdom. And we're going to sort of walk through Matthew 16. As we get there, though, stick your finger in Matthew 16 and turn back to Matthew chapter 1, just so you can see the walk down to what brings us to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 1. So just sort of as we, I'm going to talk us through Matthew chapters 1 through 15. Just look at the headings in your text. All right? and Just look at the, the, the themes that are brought out. Chapter 1 is a genealogy of Jesus Christ. It starts at Abraham, and it comes all the way up to Jesus, and it pauses for reflection at King David. This is the story of a king. From the the get-go, from the first page of the New Testament, this is the story of a king. There is something kingly that is about what is going to happen in this story in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, the wise men, right, the magi, the rulers from an another place far, far away in this world, come to this podunk middle of nowhere looking for Jesus, who they know is what? A king. Who do they go to? The earthly king, King Herod. Herod says, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'd sure like to kill him when you find him. They go, they see the true king. What do they do? They worship. Heaven meets earth. Literally, Jesus, Herod, boom, Herod loses. Right? Little itty-bitty baby wins. Because he's the king of kings. He's Herod's king. Just Herod won't wise up to it. John chapter 3. Right? The, John the Baptist is the Brad Pitt of his day. Like, everything he does succeeds. It just works. You know, like John the Baptist is a superstar in Israeli culture at this point in time. John the Baptist says, hey, take the attention off me. Put the attention on him. Who's that? Yeah, he's a rabbi from Nazareth. <laughs> Nazareth. Are you joking? Actually, no, I'm not. I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. He's the one that's going to bring judgment. He's the one that's going to bring uh, the baptism that you truly need. So pay attention to him. What does a king have when a king goes out on procession? He has forerunners in front of him. Right? He's got people that declare and prepare the way. Matthew chapter 4. We go from Herod and Jesus to now Satan and Jesus. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. Bam! Kingdom of darkness loses. 
right? Jesus' kingship in the first four chapters, he goes from baby to, to uh, um, governmental king, like man's government, to a royal king, and now to a spiritual king. Four chapters, there it is. Chapter five, it now comes time to ask this king, so how do these, how do things work? You've beaten Herod, you've beaten Satan, John the Baptist tells us to listen to you, so we're sure going to do that. What's it going to be like? Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. That's a, that's a law in my kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll inherit the earth. That's a law in my kingdom. You should be meek. If you're meek, you'll receive more than you could ever imagine, more authority than you could ever imagine. Really? We've never heard that before. I know, right? It gets better. You've heard it said that you should hate people, but I'm telling you to love. You've heard it said that to commit adultery is sin, but I'm telling you that to look at a woman wrongly is adultery. You've heard it said you shouldn't forgive. Let me tell you this story about how deeply I want you to forgive. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's the new law. It's the new way. It's the way of Jesus. It's the kingdom. It's the government of the kingdom. Then we hit chapter 8, and Jesus starts to be resisted. By the time we get to chapter 8, sort of like Jesus begins to heal and he begins to show what he's about. People are like, oh, I love this guy. He's a great celebrity. And Jesus is like, don't be too quick. Because you've got to understand that to follow me means you give everything. It means that this whole big concept that I live and stand for, the kingdom, is now what you live and stand for. In chapter 9, Jesus continues rewriting things to the point that he calls a tax collector, somebody that works for the Roman government, somebody that works for the government that everybody in Israel thinks is against the government of God. He actually calls this guy a traitor, this, uh, somebody everybody hates, calls them and says, come be my disciple. It's actually the guy that wrote the book. Uh, God, Jesus is completely rewriting things. Matthew 10, he says, now you understand me, you know me, you can walk in my government, you can feel my ways, now take my government and take it out there. Go, go give it to people. See what happens. And they come back. Oh, Lord, we can't believe it. I mean, the demons, they fell on our name. And we healed people and did amazing things like because of what you gave us. And Jesus says, better things than this you'll do. Bigger things than this you'll see. In chapter 11, Jesus continues to make this message more hard. He begins to say, don't get caught up in the sensationalism. Understand what you're signing on for. You're signing on for a life that is the most deepest and significant uh, fulfillment that you've ever received. But it only comes as you buy in. It only comes as you commit yourself fully to this task of advancing the kingdom of God. Chapter 12, Jesus continues to rewrite things as he goes on an attack against the Sabbath. Jesus, you can't heal a man's hand on the Sabbath. That's work. That's what the religious leaders say. You can't do that. Jesus says, you've heard it said that we shouldn't work on the Sabbath. You've heard it said that I can't heal on the Sabbath, but I say to you, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Be well, be whole. And the man's hand is restored. Chapter 13, Jesus knows that they're not quite getting it yet, and so he provides them with all these parables about the kingdom. Each one of these parables is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like this. Like, you got to get it. It's weird. It's mysterious. It's strange. It's concrete. It's basic. It's applicable. All at the same time. Chapter 14 finds Jesus 
doing some incredible things. The kingdom of God is just becoming so realized in who he is. Jesus, there's 10,000 people here, and we can't feed them. Send them home. Do we have any food at all? Yeah, we got a happy meal. That'll work. Let's feed them. Are you serious? Actually, yes. Amazing. Jesus, walking on water. Peter freaks out. Peter, come out here. Come live my kingdom. Walk on the water. And he does. Which shows me that as crazy as the kingdom can get, it's as amazing as God wants to show up in our lives. If you had asked Peter before he hopped out of the boat, are you a water walker? Like, can you do this? Nope. If you ask Peter after he hops out of the boat, are you a water walker? Yup. And what did it take? It took a grasp of the kingdom of God. It took the kingship of Christ being applied in his life in real time. That's insane. But so is the cross, right? And so is the resurrection. And so is everything else that we base our lives on. We leave all of this kingdom government stuff in Jesus' hands, and we go to him in intercessory prayer, and we say, Jesus, bring it, Jesus, bring it, Jesus, bring it. And Jesus is looking right back at us and saying, that's why I put you there. Take it. Go. Go. Take my kingdom where it needs to be. Take my kingdom where you know it needs to go. That's why I put you there. Chapter 15 finds Jesus continually engaging the traditions and the commandments that these people have been so caught up in, their ritualistic systems. But the heart of Jesus never changes. He desires to see his people united in him. Jesus does not pray for unity in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The story of the kingdom is always about more worshipers before the throne. That happens as the people of God move forward in oneness. Oneness happens as we receive the gospel of the kingdom and live the gospel of the kingdom. There is no other banner under which we can come. There is no other banner under which we live. It's not enough to be a part of a local church. It's not enough to be moralistic. It's not enough to make pretty good decisions most of the time. It's not enough to get it on Sunday morning and lose it on Wednesday at work. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is a governmental way of living. In other words, it structures your life legally, spiritually. It administrates how you live in the world around you, no matter where you are. So that when your boss gives somebody else the favor that you actually worked hard to receive, you can rest in humility and say, God sees me. So that when your child decides to be disobedient for the 597th time that day, you can still not provoke your child to anger, but discipline them in the nurture of the Lord. It can be something huge and massive, like doing gospel work in tribal native cultures that have never heard the gospel. And it can be as basic as making sure you watch your tone when you talk to your neighbor. The kingdom of God comes with power in both of those ways. And Jesus is revealing these things to us. This is how people come to Christ. People come to Christ. That the world, that's the last phrase, that the world may know that you sent me. Notice, they're here. 
that the world may know that you sent me. Go out here and ask anybody who doesn't know. Go walk up and down Pottstown and say, where's God? He's there. Is God near you? Nope. Probably not. But that's exactly why he came, was to be near, so that they know that you sent me. That's the whole idea. But if we're not united in and under the banner of the kingdom and with Jesus as our king, then we do not have anything to be one under. Then we fragment and we dissolve and we become a different sermon. All right. So we get to chapter 16. Chapter 16, chapters 1 through 15 have been one big buildup to chapter 16. The whole book of Matthew hinges on chapters, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Because up until these verses, we see Jesus instituting a theoretical, a theological concept of the kingdom. He's exampling it for them. He's modeling it for them. But after this, we see things start to go really haywire in Jesus' life. He begins to be fiercely resisted. He begins to be fiercely come against by the religious establishment. The question is, is who will his disciples be in the midst of this? And he empowers them in this. And this power is as alive and accessible for you today as it was for them then. When Jesus came into the district of Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And that question stands as strong today as it ever has in human history. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And I don't mean what do you say with your mouth. I'm like, what do you communicate with your life? Who do you believe that God is? Is God your genie in a bottle? When you want something, you rub it and ask him. Is God your therapist? He has his office. You have your life. But every once in a while, you throw some money in the plate to get him to listen to you for a while. And if you can throw in some assistant therapist to preach and play the music, that's cool too. But for now, God's in the office and I'm over here. A lot of us have this picture that God's disconnected and distant and far. And that when I'm in the deepest pain of my life, God's far off somewhere, and I would love for him to be near. But I just can't get there. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's a question that's active and that you should answer now, every every moment. Who is Christ? Because whoever Christ is, is who he will be to you. Did you hear that? Whoever Christ is, is who he will be to you. So if you have a false construct of who Jesus is, then you will have a false God that you're worshiping, which is why the truth of who he is must get into you. And the truth is revealed here, which means we come under this and we come under Peter's statement. Who do you say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're a great, great Christian leader. You're Jeremiah. You're one of the prophets. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The word Christ is important here. He does not say you are Jesus. He does not say that you are Lord. He says you are You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When he says that, he's saying you're the Messiah. He's saying that you are the king. You are the king that we've been waiting for. 
for thousands and thousands of years, we have been waiting for someone to come and to deliver us. For someone to come with a reign and a kingdom that is stronger than the reigns and the kingdoms that we have been under for all of our history. Be it Egypt, or be it Persia, or be it Rome, whatever it is. We're looking for somebody to deliver us and to bring a stronger kingdom than the kingdoms that oppress us. And that's what we believe you are. We believe you're that person. We believe you're that king. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter hits the nail on the head. I mean, Peter has some serious gaffes from time to time when it comes to, like, his expression of truth uh, or question asking of Jesus. But, man, this one, Jesus, yes, yes, that's who I am. In fact, that is such a strong statement that I can build my entire church on that statement. Well done, Peter. Upon this rock, upon this confession, upon this statement of truth that Peter just spoke so boldly and so truly, upon this truth, I will build my church. I will build my church. Here's a question for you. In the scriptures, where does the church begin? What day? So it's a special day. It starts with a P. Pentecost. That's right. Starts on Pentecost. When does Pentecost happen? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 happens after Jesus dies and rises from the dead. So Jesus says to the disciples, upon this rock, I will build my church. And there is no church. Huh. They don't seem to, like, Give pause to this, though. They don't ask any questions. They seem to know exactly what he's talking about. Upon this rock, this is the first mention of church in the New Testament. This is the first mention of church in the ministry of Jesus, period. It's not like he's been saying, so I'm going to set this thing up. It's going to have elders and deacons. It's going to have the structure. It's going to, you know, they're going to have buildings. It's going to be this kind of a thing. This is the first time he said anything at all about the church. And they just seem to get it. Upon this rock, I will build my church but there is no church. So how in the world do they know what he's talking about? It's because they're pretty used to this concept. The word church is the word ecclesia. Let me hear you say ecclesia. Ecclesia. An ecclesia is a gathering. It's a called out people for a special purpose. A purposeful assembly gathered for the purpose of deciding on things. It includes, this is important, it includes the idea of authority. Authority within the community of called out people. An ecclesia is a normal governmental way that this culture goes about making decisions and executing authority. So we've got a problem in the town. You know, your town has problems. Uh, there should be a stoplight out at that crazy intersection by the Coventry Cafe. You know? That's ridiculous. And pulling out on 724, there is murder. And there's no reason why there shouldn't be a stoplight there. I personally should be part of the gathering that determines whether or not there should be a stoplight there. Right? I've got passion for this. I've got leadership. But unless someone calls me out, I'm just a normal dude. You do not get the whole town together to have this discussion. Right? I mean, that's insane. You don't bring 25,000 people together to talk about a stoplight at an intersection on 724. You don't give every person a microphone and say, this is how it should happen. You especially don't do that if somebody's got vested interest in, in like, 
why there shouldn't be a stoplight right there on 724, even though there so clearly should be. But this person, they just don't understand, like, the way that things work because they're not a part of the system that actually wants to care for the flow of traffic here through the Pottstown area. It's the same basic thing. So we, we, we call an ecclesia. We call some folks who have vested authority to make a decision. And then they make that decision, and a stoplight gets put in. And things work much better on 724, right? So it's, the ecclesia is this called-out idea. We are all born in the kingdom of darkness. We can be moralistic people. We can be good people. But none of us understands God's heart. None of us knows who the king is because at that point in time, before we come into faith in Christ, we're all our own king. We're just running our own king, building our own kingdoms. And on some level, we're all submitting to the kingdom of darkness because we're not yet in the kingdom of light. When we are called out of the kingdom of darkness and to the kingdom of light, we are now part of an ecclesia that can speak life, grace, glory, and goodness to the whole group of people who are not yet a part of this ecclesia yet. It's an authoritative, called-out gathering of people that are meant to execute authority and to live authoritatively, to make decisions, to engage things in their culture and in their world. And they do so with the heart of their king. Because notice, they didn't call themselves out. They were called out by somebody. Who? The king, the Messiah. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Not only will I build my church, but upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is an interesting picture. We almost always think of this phrase in terms of spiritual warfare. Not that that's a bad way to think of it, but it's sort of like, here's the kingdom of darkness, here's the kingdom of light, and they're both coming to war. Who's going to prevail in this? Well, what kind of weapons are they using? Well, the kingdom of light is using swords and shields and armor. What's the kingdom of darkness using? Gates. Who's going to win? Well, I never had a fight with a gate before, but that can't be helpful. So what the, what is God talking about here? You've got to think about gates in the proper perspective. This is a gate in an ancient city. <clears throat> this is what gates would have looked like in ancient Jerusalem or other cities in ancient times. Because you have a city, you build walls around it. The thicker and bigger your walls, the more important your city and the better defended it is. But you can't just sit in walls that don't have a way to get in or out. I mean, commerce still has to, still has to happen. How does commerce happen? Import, export, things flow, things move, things go to and through cities and up and down roads in between cities. So when the city gate is open, that means something can get in. It also means that things can get out. Commerce can happen. But the city gate then has to be an important place because the gate is now determining what goes in and what goes out. So in ancient cities, a smart king would find a magistrate, a judge that he trusts, and would put a judge in every one of those gates. And that, that judge, that person who has authority to execute the king's law, would be well-versed in the king and what the king thinks and what the king values and what the king has set up. So if I'm a magistrate and I'm sitting in a gate, I don't work for myself. If I work for myself, I lose my job, right? I may even get put in prison because I, my job is to represent him. He's up in the castle or 
ruling or doing whatever it is that he's doing, making decisions like this. Some lumber comes in, and I say, where's this lumber coming from? And they say, it's coming from Syria. We've got good lumber there. And we'll give you a good price on it. Wow, Syria, lumber, all right. But to myself, I know, my king just established a treaty with the nation of Lebanon that says that we will only buy lumber from Lebanon. So while I myself might think that Syrian lumber is okay, I am not allowed to violate the treaty that the king set up with Lebanon that only lumber from there can come in. Why? Because that's what the king said. Who's the authority? The king's the authority. But what if the king gets it wrong? Right? Like, Syrian lumber, it's pretty good. It's a good price. Now let's, let's go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it's just, just a little bit of lumber. We'll set a little bit of lumber in there. What I don't know is that Syrian lumber has this horrific, like, nasty little, like, like termite chigger bug. And it gets in there, and people buy it, and they put it in their house, and it begins to eat the houses out. Before I know it, and the, the, the king's like, where did this come from? I know where this bug comes from, and that's why I made this treaty to begin with. Who violated it? Oh, I thought I had a better government. Well, you don't. And now we've got to spend thousands of dollars in repairing people's homes, thanks to you. If you had trusted and listened, maybe even asked a good question, I could have given you a good answer. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gate is where government happens. When the gate, when the government, that is not the king's government, happens, it's a bad government because the king knows what needs to happen because the king's the authority. At least that's the idea. Sometimes there's bad kings that hurt people. Our king is not a bad king. Our king's a great king. Our king's only good and loving and kind and gracious and wants nothing but good and kindness and, and love for everybody in the whole world. People that come to us, yeah, love. Goodness, truth, beauty. But people come with all kinds of their junk that goes with it too. So let's throw pornography in the mix. Let's throw greed in the mix. You know, let's throw rebellion and let's throw workaholism and all this nasty junk in there. Can that come in the city? No, it cannot. Why not? That's not part of the king's government. Well, maybe it should be. No, it shouldn't be. Who's the king? He's the king. He's the king. And we walk out his government. The gates of hell could not prevail against it. What kind of government do you think happens at the gates of hell? Yeah, bring it in. Pornography, workaholism, rebellion. Let's all get drunk. Let's all have a great time. Let's just party and be gluttonous and ridiculous with ourselves. What do you say? Great idea. Chaos, anyone? Yes, wonderful. Gates of hell, the judgment, the politics, the government of God coming against the kingdom of God, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. When the church chooses to be the church, and chooses to live under the authority of the king, walking out the government of the king, the gates of hell cannot stand against that. Love always wins. Goodness always wins. Beauty always wins. Truth always wins. It might not look like it wins in your life, but God is about so much more than what's actually happening right there. When you and I live and advance the government of God, we are stuccoing that wall of the kingdom of God. This is the beauty of what he calls us to. Is to be instruments of his government. Powerful, authoritative, strong. So that when the enemy wants to bring deception into your wife's mind, you as a husband stand up and say, no. You will not be that to her. So that when a husband is accused by the enemy about his identity, a wife can say, no, absolutely not. We will not stand for that. 
So that when your friend betrays you and you want to react in hatred, instead you choose love and blessing. Why? Because that's the government of the king. And it will win. It will win. It just doesn't usually look like winning is what we want it to be. I oftentimes want to be right or vindicated. But in God's mind, there's something much bigger at work here. And if we will come under the kingdom of God and live according to his judgment and sit in our gate and execute his will and his laws, we will find life like we've never known. God says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Gates have locks. And you have the right to open them. And what do you do when you open them? Two things. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. This is rabbi language. This is rabbi language that Jesus dealt with all the time. The rabbi said, we are going to bind Jesus to our law that healing on the Sabbath is sin. So Jesus, we bind you to this. Jesus says to his disciples, I loose you from that. I release you from that inappropriate binding that they bound you to because that's not the heart of God. I'm the king, and I have the right to bind and to loose. And as the king, I am giving you the authority to bind and to loose. To bind and to loose simply means to permit. It's the idea that what God desires to be here, what God desires to be loosed on, in this world, what God desires to be permitted in this world, what God wants to see work out in this world, you and I have authority and calling and identity to walk that out in real time in a way that affects real people. And what God desires to see done away with, things that come against the kingdom of darkness, junk that wants to get through the gates, you and I have the ability to say, no, we will not loose that here. That is bound and it must go. Turn that cart around. It has no right to be here. That's you and me. That level of authority. The king sits in absolute confidence in his people. You and I are the government of God in this world. You and I have the authority of the king himself as we are subjected to and submitted to and in love with him to walk out the government of God in a way that tells Satan exactly where he can go and that tells the forces of darkness exactly what can happen in their lives. You have the right to authoritatively speak to yourself in what you believe and do not believe about who you are and your identity. You have the right to say, I feel like God has forgotten me. But the government of God tells me that my God is with me because he is a God who has brought heaven here. And therefore, I will choose that and I will stand in that. Even though he slay me, I will trust in him. That's what Job said. That's a man who knew how to walk in the government of God. Binding and loosing is the call of the believer as it comes to us living in the kingdom of God. We don't tell God what to do. It's not us saying, God, I'm going to bind this, so make sure you bind it too. <laughs> you know, we send memos back to the king or emails. You know. <laughs> God's very electronically minded. And uh, it's the idea that we agree with heaven when we bind and loose. If you were to read this in the, in the, in the Greek, it's very confusing and, and not easy to translate. But it works out like this. What you bind will have already been being bound, right? 
what you bind will have already been. In other words, you know your king's heart. And where he's flowing is where you're flowing. That's what Jesus said. I don't do works of myself. I find where God's working. I only do the works the Father puts in me. Where God is working, I work. What you bind will already have been being bound. What you loose will already have been being loosed. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will put his desires within you. This, This is the beauty of the government of God. This is the beauty of the king and of who he is. This is the authority that you are called to. Not just you individually, but Parker Ford Church. You have authority to remit. You have the authority to persuade. You have the authority to bind. You have the authority to loose the kingdom of God in Coventry, in Pottstown, in Parker Ford, in Phoenixville, in southeastern Pennsylvania, and around the world as the Lord gives you calling and license to be and to do that. And you're here, a local church. Keyword, local. So be local. Be the church here. Take the government of God and see it infused into your lives. Start with yourselves and your homes. And walk it from there. Agreeing with God. It will already have been being loosed. Jesus does it all the time. You've heard it said, but I say to you, heard this, you've heard that from the Pharisees, but I'm telling you, it's like this now. Jesus does not give his people pipe dreams. When Jesus says, greater things than what I have done, you will do, he's not lying to you. Most of us here would go, I've never done anything as great as Jesus did. And then the response to that is shame. Well, then you stink right? That's not Jesus. That's not his heart. Where we, what, what we miss is his power at work within us by our calling to be a person of the kingdom, in the kingdom, and advancing the kingdom. You individually, you corporately as a church, the regional church in this land, the global church around the, around the world, we have the authority the power of the king of all kings of the lord of all lords who calls us to enact this in our world so what's this look like for pfc what's it look like for the lion to conquer the snake we tend to think of things in in huge ways one of the biggest ways that i saw this like just blow your mind kind of a thing is tim and i were at the uh, church of the brothers annual conference a few weeks ago and a bunch of brothers and sisters from EYN, uh, the Church of the Brethren in Nigeria, were there. And the Church of the Brethren in Nigeria has been experiencing just horrific persecution. Um, many churches burned, martyrs. Uh, we, had a t- we had a prayer time for 10,000 specific names of people who have been killed, wounded, and displaced just in the last few months, in the last year. Watching and listening to these brothers and sisters get up and talk about their faithfulness in Christ, their steadfastness, their pain, their worry, their anxiety, and who God is to them in the midst of it was so deeply moving. You know, just this huge work that God is doing in the midst of such resistance. And the kingdom of God is being massively advanced in Nigeria because of it. Yesterday, the kingdom of God was massively advanced in my house. Right, because my son like, was walking and he dropped his cup of milk and his sister went over and grabbed the paper towels and helped him clean it up. And the kingdom of God was 
massively advanced in my home. The kingdom of God was as powerfully advanced in Lebanon yesterday as it has been in Nigeria. We have a hard time believing that because it's not as sexy. We have a hard time believing that because unless we're doing great, big, powerful things like Jay's up here preaching, I'm just sitting here listening. No, 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 no. Whoever's changing diapers in the nursery right now is every bit as important as I am to the kingdom at this point in time because this is God's government, which means we're all valued and what we all bring to the table, be it the kindness of a 13-year-old with her little brother or be it this massive work of protecting the church in a persecuted country. That is the kingdom of God advancing. And I believe that we're all connected in and through that, which means they can't be that unless my daughter was the way she was yesterday. And I can't preach unless somebody's changing diapers in the nursery. And and vice versa. Like this is the beautiful interconnected body of Christ that is authoritative and strong and moving things forward. But we get so complacent with our lives and we just let life happen to us. You know, think about life happening to you. Especially here on the East Coast. You know, like work, 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 work. What did you do more of? Work. Why? Because that's what we do. We get up early. We fight traffic, or maybe not, whatever you do. We go to work. What do we do for the majority of the day? We work. What do we do when we come home? We try to not work, but we all keep working, right? Because there's kids to take here, and there's things to do there, and there's stuff that needs to be done around the house, so we work some more. And then we go to bed tired, being aware that what comes the next day? Work. Right, and then what do you do on the weekend? You find something to work at one way or the other. All right, so it doesn't matter if you're working at work or if you're working at home or if you're working at school or wherever it is that you might be working. You're probably working somewhere. What is it that you most want? You want to check out. Right, you, want to, you want to watch Survivor. But even that feels like work. And so all we can ever think of rest as is amusement. You know what muse means? The word muse means to think. When you put an A on the front of a Latin-based word, It negates it. Amusement means to not think. And to us, that's rest. Like, dear Lord, just let me disconnect for just a a half an hour, you know, while I watch some idiots do something dumb on a screen and and then come back to my life. And this is rest. And we go to bed tired. We're like, man, I didn't even have that busy of a day. And I rested. I watched like four TV shows. That's not rest. Right? Because somehow we think that's rest. That's not what the government of God says rest is. The government of God has a lot to say about rest, but that's not it. I'm not saying rest can't be TV. Sometimes it is. But if you don't think about rest with God, then you'll never get rest. So what do we do? We go back to work the next day and the next day, and we work with the kids, and we work around our house, and we work with our family, and we work, and we work, and we work. What do we get at the weekend, though? We get two days, and we don't work, but usually... We work. And what's it feel like when you get up from, for church on Sunday morning where you're supposed to go and rest with God, but you've worked all those six days, and now you're like, oh, man, now i got to get up. And the kids are always hellish on Sunday mornings. And so it's just sort of like, oh, now i got to really work to get, to get to church, and I get to church. And it's been a, just a horrible morning, but I walk in like, hey, it's so good to see you. God bless you. And it's such work to, it's such work to be so fake, you know. And so I go home. I go home, and I'm just, and I was like, man, I'm so glad that's over. I'm going to rest, and I take my Sunday afternoon nap. But that's not really rest, because God doesn't say that a nap is rest. But I should be rested, because I got a nap. Man, so I don't understand what's going on here. I mean, dear Lord, I hope the Eagles win a lot of games this year, or else my life is going to be awful, you know, because I just can't take the emotional toil after this offseason. I don't know what to do with myself. 
Vacation comes, you fight 95 traffic, you get to a beach somewhere. What do you do then? You rest, you know. But rest, you come back from your vacation feeling like you need a vacation from your vacation. It's just sort of like this is the American rat race. This is the American hamster wheel. And we just inject these false forms of rest in and through it every now and then. And then we're still looking at ourselves in the mirror going, why in the world am I tired? And we're looking at our spouse and looking at our kids and being like, well, I mean, our kids are running. We say to our spouse, our kids are running our lives. Why are the kids running our lives? Why are the kids' schedules running? Do they have to do everything? And we look at each other and go, no. And then let them do everything. Because we don't have the guts to say no to our kid. That's not God's governmental rest. My point in all this is that we are caught up in cultural iniquities, and work is just one of them. Because now we've taken work, and we made, we, we, we made a different word for it. You know what our new word is for work? Busy. So then a pastor comes to us and is like, you know, we've been wa- watching you. You've been seeing your gifts. We would love for you to serve in this regard at our church. Man, you know, I'd really love to. But I'm, I'm busy. As if he's not. Or as if nobody else in this room is. Right? So let's just say right up front that, like, the kingdom of darkness is winning. There's this ridiculous cultural iniquity around work that we've all bought into. And we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue what rest is as Americans. We have completely turned our back on it. Because God gives us some very distinct and true ways to think about rest, particularly from Hebrews chapter 4 and particularly in the rhythms of Sabbath throughout the whole of Scripture. And if we would go to this book, this governmental book, and read these governmental principles and enact them in our lives, we would see rest come in a way that maybe it's not about not being busy as much as about defining what busy is. Maybe rest isn't so much about just not stopping moving as much as rest is moving at the same pace as God. And sometimes God's moving 100 miles an hour, and sometimes God's not moving anywhere. But when God's not going anywhere and you're going 100 miles an hour, or when God's going 100 miles an hour, you're not going anywhere, you better believe you're going to get worn out. And we've got it all mixed up backwards and flummoxed. But God gives us ways to think about this. God gives us ways, in fact, to enact it. God gives us ways to advance the kingdom in light of a culture that refuses, iniquitously, rebelliously refuses to submit to God's way of rest. You, my friends, have done this. You have said, we are going to take a prophetic stake and drive it in the ground right now for this season. And we are going to tell Tim to go away and rest. We are going to pursue and embrace God's governmental principle And we're going to ask one of our leaders to be a prophet in that regard to find out what in the world rest is and to come back here and lead us in it. Now, we all know Tim. Tim is going to use this time of sabbatical to go after God. It's what he does. It is an incredible part of how he is. And when he comes back, he's going to come back full. He's going to come back with a word from the Lord about what rest is and what it means for us together to be in that and what it was for him. And there's going to be ministry and beauty that comes from it. No question in my mind. The question is, is will you engage sabbatical too? 
Four months is a long time, but it's not too long to just gut it out. You could sit in your heart and just sort of be like, man, man, I wish nobody ever gave me four months off. I'm not sure what this thing is, but hopefully we'll get back to what it is because when Tim's here, things tend to move a little bit faster. You know, just see. You know, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I guess we'll wait till Tim gets back to see what God wants to do here. Or you can say to yourself, God is with us. There is here. And we are concretely and functionally declaring as a body of Christ that there is here. Because we are stepping into sabbatical intentionally and with reality. And we are begging God to uproot our cultural iniquity and to teach us what it means for us to be us as a church that is not pastor-centric, but that has Christ as its king. Right? Christ as its... That's the goal for Parker Ford Church in this sabbatical, is for Jesus to be the king here like he's never been before. And that's not to say Tim gets in the way of it or... Josh, any of the other leaders here, this is no judgment on any of those things. I believe in Parker Ford Church and its leadership. It is to say that if Christ is not the king, that his government cannot be enacted. It cannot be advanced here. And if the government of God is not advanced and enacted here at Parker Ford Church, then this region and the people in it that need Christ will go missing the kingdom of God. They might go to church, but they won't get the kingdom. The kingdom of God is why Jesus came. It's who he is. It's what he does. So will this sabbatical be a transformational experience for you? Will you open your heart and your mind to pursuing the kingdom of God in the way that he has it for you in this experience, which will be different for everybody and will also be the same for everybody because that's what God does. It's an amazing work. That as we advance his kingdom together and receive his kingdom principles together, we see sin and iniquity broken off of us, and we receive revelation and light that we did not have before to understand our experiences. So right now, you might not understand sabbatical at all. That's okay. But God wants to open it for you. But if you sit there with a closed mind and a closed heart saying, this is what I think about it now, and this, I'm, I'm not going to change, then this will be bad for you. And you will not get it. And Parker Ford will move forward, and you'll miss something. Don't, don't do that. Open yourselves to the advancement of the kingdom of God in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own spirit, in your own life. And as you as a church corporately embrace sabbatical and walk to and through it, let's look for God's revelation, his redefinition, his grace, his peace, and most of all, his government, where we pray together, God, in this sabbatical, your kingdom come, your will be done here at Parker Ford Church as it is in heaven. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this body of believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We bless you to receive the fullness of the kingdom of God. Yeah, that sounds like a lot, God. That is a big prayer. But I don't want to pray anything smaller than that. The fullness of the kingdom of God at Parker Ford Church the fullness of the kingdom of God in every brother and sister here. In the biggest things that we can imagine, in the smallest things that we interact with day to day, God, bring your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done at Parker Ford Church as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.